We are in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Before we begin, let's pray. If you need a Bible, by the way, raise your hand. We have Bibles. Anyone need a Bible? Raise your hand. Yeah. No. Father, we thank you for your word. Every jot, every tittle. And Lord, we're ever reminded on Sunday night of your walk with those two disciples on the way to Emmaus where you opened up the book of Moses. And you took those two disciples through the book of Moses and the prophets and you showed them everywhere there where you were. And Lord, we, we want to we see that this evening. Where you, where there's a, a foreshadowing of you, a type, a message, a redemptive message that you fulfilled, Lord. I pray that you guide us, I pray that you lead us, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Genesis from chapter 12 on is the story of God initiating a story of redemption. In Genesis chapter 6, there was God initiated judgment through Noah. In Genesis chapter 12, the people of the world got to about the same place they had been in in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, it says, all the people in the world, their, their thoughts were only evil all the time. It says in Genesis chapter 6. Well, within about 12 generations, about the time of Abraham, it wasn't that much better. But instead of initiating re- judgment, he initiated redemption by calling Abraham out of the land of Babylon and we followed his life Abraham Isaac Jacob the remarkable story of Joseph and just how Israel was saved through the life of Joseph though his and when his brothers sold him to as a slave to the Ishmaelite traders what they had meant for ba- bad, God had meant for good. They'd saved, uh, really, the messianic line because there was a famine in the land. Joseph was raised to be the second most powerful person in the world during a f- widespread famine. winds up bringing uh, down to Egypt his father Jacob and there's about 70 of them came down about... 280 years, 300 years before the events that took place in Exodus. And then last time we were in Exodus, there's just the story of the birth of Moses and he is preserved. The Jews had grown from about 70 people about 300 years before, just in a period of a few hundred years to about 1.5 million. And I that number we come up with because in the book of Numbers about how it it uh, 
states there that about 600,000 fighting men had left Egypt and Israel. So God grew up this people into a mighty nation, a nation that would be ready to occupy the promised land. And Egypt grew very threatened by all those immigrants. Again, familiar story. (laughs) This is what we're seeing today. And started making laws uh, against them, and in, including just draconian laws. Just uh, it got to the point. Uh, it, it's the, the, there first was a law to really afflict them in a particularly hard way in their slavery. When they multiplied even there, Pharaoh said, "Okay, every son uh, that is born, uh, you need to cast them into the river." And so uh, Moses' mother and father made a little ark and put him in the river. He was taken up by Pharaoh's daughter and then given back to his mother through his sister who nursed him. And verse 10 of chapter uh, 2 says, And the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she called his name Moses saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Now, 40 years pass between verse 10 and verse 11. Verse 11 says, Now it came to pass in those days, 40 years after, verse 10, when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his Brethren. Now, it has been said that Moses' life is broken up really in three 40-year periods. The first 40 years, the son of Pharaoh's daughter is in Stephen in Acts chapter 7 says that Moses was mighty in word and deed. He was highly educated, not only learned, but had giftings and the ability to speak. Josephus, a Jewish historian, this is not the Bible. He's a Jewish historian that lived at the time of Christ. Although he does have a reputation from time to time of being given to exaggeration. So you need to be careful when you read Josephus, although he's fascinating to read. Said that Moses was in line to be Pharaoh. We don't know for sure, but to be sure, his future was amazing. From, a, from the world's perspective, I mean, he had it all. Moses had it all. But in verse 11, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. It says one of his brethren, he's forced to make a choice, decide with uh, Egyptians or the Hebrews here, interesting, um, called here his brethren. He chooses to identify uh, with the Hebrews. It says that he looked this way and that way. So he looked in the right and looked to the left. Where did he not look? He should have looked one other way. He forgot to look up. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a God plan here. So he looked to the, the, this way and that way. When he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And so you, you think now and consider what happened when his mother weaned him 
during that time period. Uh, it seems like we have more young mothers in our church than we can count anymore, but the, 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 the mothers, uh, so important that they are speaking the word of God from the time the child is in the womb. They speak the word of God. And clearly, whatever she did, his mother, his Hebrew mother, before she gave him back to Pharaoh, had a profound effect on him. Now, did he have interaction during the, those 40 years with his mother? I don't know. There was, remember that Hebrews were an abomination to the Egyptians. It actually says that at the end of Genesis. That's why even when they came down from the time of Joseph, even when they came down from the land of Canaan, they made them live in a place separate and apart which God really used to, to grow them into a nation. But um, we don't really know. I, I would gather, uh, yes, but it should be a tremendous encouragement to Sunday school teachers and to our Calvary Kids Ministry. And let me tell you, when you're feeding the Word of God into kids, very rarely do you see the fruits of that anytime soon, really. You know, sometimes it's years later. But here... Moses chooses to identify with the Hebrews. So he kills the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And that is murder. <laughs> There's a way, Proverbs says, that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. There's a way that we try to get things done for God. He thought he was going to be God's helper here. And we have our own ideas, don't we, about how to help out God. Almost certainly, this wasn't a God plan. If you just look at this, I mean, could it have been possible that the Lord directed him to do it? I mean, I, I don't think so. When you see the backdrop of the Bible, it's not how God gets his, his things done. However, what the devil meant for bad God used for really, really, really good. And we'll, we'll, we'll see that. But, you know, you look at the history of the life of Moses, the record of his life, it appears that he hated oppression. He hated seeing his people oppressed here. And um, if you do all the math, for those of you who have been with us, in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham was told 400 years they'll be in Egypt. Well, there were still 40 years left at the time he killed this Egyptian. It's about 360 if you do the math. There's still 40 years uh, yet for them to, to be in this time of testing and time of growth in the land of, uh, of Egypt. So in 30 seconds, he, he looks at this Hebrew brother being uh, oppressed, beaten. In 30 seconds, he just loses everything he had. Everything. It's amazing how decisions like that are. You're out in the street or wherever. You see something going on. You make a split-second decision and everything can be gone in an instant. And that's, that's the way it was with Moses. His education, his advantage, his riches, his, the culture, the luxury, his influence at court, everything thrown away. So verse 13 
And when he had went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting, and he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Verse 14, then he said, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. It's, it's amusing here, I guess if you could call it that, that Moses probably assumed that the Hebrews would consider him like as a deliverer. It's like, wow, this guy, you know, he killed an Egyptian. You know, we should never underestimate the lack of spirituality and the lack of common sense of fallen man. There's none of that feeling that Moses was the deliverer. His own brethren said to him in verse 14, who made you a prince and judge over us? Are you going to kill one of us? Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Hey, Dan, did we find a... Dan actually is looking for a map of the land of Midian. So Midian... Midian is right up there around... Moab, somewhere around Moab, the wilderness of Zin, around that area is where Midian was. Where is it? Show it. Oh, over there, okay. How could I have missed that? It's right in front of my face. Later on, we'll see the Moabites and the Midianites in a sort of, in a, um, I don't know, they join up together against Israel. So I assume that's, that's where they were. But no, they are. They're down there. So thank you for that. And so he fled a long way there. He fled to Midian. And he just hung out there. And he had to, so he had to flee quite a long way to get there, to the land of Midian. It says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Ruel, their father... He said, how is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian. So Moses at this time looks like an Egyptian. He's bald and dressed like an Egyptian. I've said it probably already too many times for you guys' um, comfort, but the Egyptian men just shaved all the hair off their body. And they had, you see, the, and so they looked very, dip, uh, very different than other people. 
an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughter, and where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? He's got seven daughters. I mean, you know, come on, ladies. Why did you leave the guy? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. So the Midianites, Midian was one of the sons of Abraham through Keturah. Anyone know who Keturah was? Keturah was the woman that Abraham married after Sarah died. And you don't hear a whole lot about her except he did have a number of sons through this woman, Keturah, including a son called Midian. And so what really is interesting to me, particularly since later on you see, you, you see he, he, this guy's a high priest of, or a priest of Midian. It's like, what's that all about? And why is he joining up with him? And why is he marrying one of his daughters? And why does later on, is he taking some advice from his father-in-law, whose name, by the way, it's called here Ruel, but his name is Jethro. You see that um, in chapter 3, verse 1. What did they know about Jehovah God? What did they know about the Lord? Did they know God? It's an interesting subject to me. Now, I, I hope I don't bore you to death. I, I Please, I, I, I apologize in advance. I do have a reason for this, but I just want to look at that issue for a while. No doubt that Abraham, I, I, I think we can assume fairly, given that Abraham is called in the Bible a friend of God, he's an enormous man of God in the Bible, that he educated his kids on who the Lord was, including Midian. But they're about 500 years now from the birth of Midian. So when, Abraham, so when Moses is running into these Midianites and marrying a daughter of a Midianite, this is about 500 years um, away from it. Now, I think Moses probably did train up Midian in the things of the Lord. I personally think it's possible that we'll see Midians, Midianites from this time period in Exodus chapter 2 in heaven. I mean, I say this because later on in, in Exodus, Moses is actually taking advice from uh, this same man. An interesting comparison would be the Samaritans. Now try to stay with me here. It is also possible that the Midianites may have been like the Samaritans who at one point knew about God, but who later apostatized and their faith became so watered down by the time Jesus shows up a thousand years after uh, the Samaritans had left Jerusalem in 930 BC, Jesus is saying salvation is from the Jews. It's not from you, Samaritans. So the Samaritans were, were Jews that left after the death of Solomon. They left with the truth, but if you see, we'll get to this eventually, um, they watered down the truth very much. They made, had their own religious priests, their own religious feasts, and eventually 
Again, they apostatize. By the time of Jesus' time, that Jesus says, look, he's a Samaritan woman, John chapter 4. Salvation is not through the Samaritans. It's from the, it's from the Jews. But the Samaritans had been Jews when they originally left Jerusalem, 960 years before Jesus. In fact, 200 years after they left Jerusalem, God is still saving them. Hosea, the book of Hosea, is preaching to those descendants of the Samaritans, and they're getting saved, some of them. All that to say, it's at least possible that the Midianites had a saving knowledge of Jehovah here, although their behavior 80 years from the time of here of Exodus chapter 2 is really awful. Because that's the, the story of Balaam, and um, Balaam advises the Midianite ruler to lure them into a sexual immorality, and it's a really bad scene. The plague breaks out. Why do I bring all this up? There's actually an application. I actually have an application here. Because if you look at some Christian traditions today, they, they broke away from a Bible-centered faith what the reformers call sola scriptura, scripture alone. They broke away in the past 2,000 years since Jesus was around. I think of the Catholic faith. If you're a Catholic here, I'm not bringing this up to offend you, but uh, I'm not an expert, but about 1,500 years ago, possibly more, possibly less, they broke away from a sola scriptura, a Bible-only centered faith, And since that break, there have been so many things added to that tradition that there are many hindrances to someone coming to a saving faith if they're in the, if they're following God or they're trying to follow God in the, in the Catholic tradition, I think of uh, practices concerning the intercession of saints, praying to Mary, these kind of things. Bible couldn't be clear. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. First Timothy 2.25, you shouldn't be praying to a saint. That's idolatry. So in order to save, you've got to get to Jesus. Now, are there Catholics who have a saving faith? I, I, yes, that's true. I have met some. However... There are enormous hindrances because they have added things like the Samaritans and no doubt like the Midianites did. And I'm bringing this up because it's so important that when you meet someone and they say, well, I'm a Catholic, you don't say in their mind, oh, I don't have to share the gospel with them. No. You should just assume they have things about their belief system that are not from the Bible. Because official Catholic dogma has a lot of stuff that's not in the Bible and that is inconsistent and irreconcilable with the Bible. You need to share your faith with those people. Same with Eastern Orthodox, same with Seventh-day Adventists and a number of other uh, traditions which, in which there, may, there are some Christians but you need to be very, very careful. The Midianites had broken off 500 years before. It could be that some of them knew the Lord. But in the 500-year period, that's a long time. That's a long time for truth to be watered down significantly. So we need to share 
the word of God with these people. Verse 21, uh, it says that um, Moses was content to live with the man, the, the priest of the Midianites, and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. Zipporah's name is Little Bird. I, I was thinking, I wonder, she had no idea who she was marrying here. I wonder sometimes, did Michelle, when she married Barack, know what she was getting into? <laughs> I mean, this guy Moses, he's a heavy dude. I mean, I did a word search of his name, like 865 times Moses' name is mentioned in the Bible. I mean, we're talking a heavy, heavy dude. And here he is, some random guy in the middle of the desert. Hey, you should marry this guy, your father says. Okay. She had no idea who this man would become. He was going to become, you know, just a mighty ruler and one of the most outstanding examples of faith in the Bible. It says here in Verse 22, she, Zipporah, bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have become a stranger in a foreign land. And now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a unilateral covenant that he made with them. God doesn't break his covenants based upon the behavior of the people he makes his covenant with. They're unilateral covenants. They're not contracts. They're covenants that he made. And God looked upon, verse 25, the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. The 400 years is up. Chapter 3, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So he is 80 years at this time. He's shepherding a flock in the middle of the desert. It's interesting, he doesn't even have his own flock. This is a guy, one, a guy who at one time had enormous wealth. He's shepherding the flock of his father-in-law. You get the impression here that he's lost all drive, all ambition, all desire to free people of oppression. By the time God comes to him here, it, it seems like he, he's not really interested in the flock of his own. He, he just wants to raise his family and die in ob obscurity. But I tell you, this 40-year period in which he's in the desert could not have been a better training for him. He needed to be so humbled to go through what he went. Now, ministry is the most blessed thing in the world, but it's also the hardest thing in the world. You need to shepherd the flock of God, and the, but the sheep are kicking dirt up in you. And you're like, wait a second. I, I'm, I've been ministering to you for years. Why are you kicking up dirt in my face? Well, if anyone ever had dirt kicked up in his face by the people he ministered to, it was Moses. 
It's just a wonderful example of a pastor, someone, an interceder for the people of God. For 40 years, the guy is in the desert. The BSD degree, I don't know who came up with that, but um, it's it's a wonderful um, expression. It has been said that the first 40 years of Moses' life, he was becoming something. The second 40 years, he was becoming nothing. And the third 40 years, he learned that God can do something with nothing. And so uh, that is true. In verse 2, it says that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. It didn't burn here. Why was the bush not burned? Because it represented the presence of the Lord. Fire is used as a symbol of God throughout Scripture. It purifies, it warns, it warms. It's a symbol of judgment. It's also a symbol of the presence of the, of the Lord that, that no matter how feeble and weak we are, when we have the presence of the Lord living inside of us, we don't become an ash heap. We're not consumed. And so, for sure, Moses himself here is a feeble bush. And um, lo and behold, this bush is not only consumed by the fire, this bush actually talks, and this bush knows his name. Verse 3 says, Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn? So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Verse 5, then he said, do not drum near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the whole place where you stand is holy Ground. Verse 6 says, Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, and he was afraid to look upon God. So what he's saying here, this is just loaded with meaning. If you're, if you're having a devotion time and you're going through the book of Exodus, man, you can just chew on this verse. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of, of, of Jacob. What do you chew on here? You chew on just all the promises that were made by God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what they must, uh, God had a long history, history with the Jews. He's saying, I've given these promises and I'm going to deliver the promises. So when he delays the deliverance, which he had delayed, he has a bigger plan. God has information that we don't have when we're at a time of affliction, when we're at a time we're really confused. Why hasn't God delivered? He doesn't want to jump in prematurely because if he does, the plan that he has for us will be will be marred. It'll be ruined. In verse 7, it says, The Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their task 
masters, for I know their sorrows. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh. What? He wants to send me to Pharaoh? Uh, I think you get the wrong guy, Lord. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people and the children of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses said said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So 40 years earlier, when he had killed that Egyptian, he was the man. He was the man. But all the confidence is gone. Seemingly, the burning desire to make a difference in the world, gone. He's been taken out of circulation. You know, some start off in ministry feeling they are qualified. Well, God's going to break them down to a place where they realize that they're not qualified, absent the power and the giftings and the calling of God. Others start off feeling completely not qualified and God builds them up. I don't know what you are. If you're feeling qualified, do I feel for you? Oh my, I've been there. I've been at the place where I thought I was an expert. And oh boy, was there some serious pain. But you're in the place, you may be in the place where you're feeling complete unqualified to do ministry. God's going to build you up. He's going to build you up to a place of usability where he can use you. It's interesting, both get to the same place. But feeling inadequate for what God wants you to do is not an excuse. God just comes in here and says, you're going to be successful because I'm going to be with you. Verse 12 says, so he said, God said, I will certainly be with you. That's all. It's been said, God, you know, zero plus one, zero plus God is a majority. Actually, just God himself is, uh, you know, is a majority. I will certainly be with you. Verse 12. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt... You shall serve God on this mountain. In other words, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. And when you're serving me on this mountain, you're going to remember back to this day. Say, wow, God did what he said he was going to do. And this is true in your life. As God is, is, is the Lord's going to do things in your life which are going to prove to you beyond a doubt that God is using you. And he does that, not so you can be all fat and happy, 
But so, because he wants to do a greater work. A greater work. And so the Lord in my life told me he was going to do some things. And he did it, and they're milestones in my life. Wow, Lord. But they were milestones in my life to do a greater work. God's doing the same thing. He w- if, if not already, he will in your life. He said, this is going to be a sign to you. I'm going to bring you guys out of Egypt, and you're going to be back worshiping me on this mountain. You're going to be just successful because I'm with you. You bring your five loaves and your two fish, and that's going to be good enough. Notice when Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? There's none of this modern self-esteem thing. Oh no, really Moses. Mo, little Moe. You're really good. You got so much potential, really. Don't feel so bad about yourself. Uh, that's, that's, how, that's how they get things done today. It's not how God gets things done. He just says, you're going to be successful because I am with you. Not because who you are. Because I am with you. I'm going to be working through you. All things are possible through Christ who strengthens me, Paul says in Philippians. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, excuse number two, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? In other words, I'm going to go to them. They're not going to believe me. Verse 14, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Remember Jesus in John chapter 10, what did he say? Before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews picked up stones to kill him. God says, I am. You tell them, I am who I am sent you. So God's in a category of one. He's, the, the, the idea there is he's self-existent. The idea there is that he is who he is, meaning in, in, throughout the Bible we're given names of God. He, he, he's merciful. He's love. He's judgment. He's justice. He's the provider. He's shalom. He's God of peace. He's our banner. I am who I am. I remember when we, in, uh, in this room, when we had a talk on, on evolution, Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, PhD from Harvard in biology, was here speaking of some of the fundamental flaws in evolution, and we had the Boston Atheist Society here. They're sitting right here. The Boston Skeptic Society was also here. And one of them asked a question. If God created everything, who created God? It's a, great an- it's a great question. But his answer was, and it's true, it just really goes to what is said right here, is that that is the fundamental difference between God and man. They're different. No one created God. 
he is, I am who I am. He's the self-existent one. He's always existed. So, so the fundamental different essence in them. So the Tetragamatron, Y-H-W-H, we do not know exactly how to pronounce this name here. In verse 14, some think it's Yahweh, others think, others think it's Jehovah. Ancient Hebrew had no vowels, so we don't know for sure how it was pronounced. At some point, you know, the Jewish scribes, they, they, didn't, they, they stopped pronouncing it because they thought that was an, uh, almost disrespectful to God. So they stopped pronouncing the name of God. And then, then after a while, they, they didn't refuse to even write it, and they just put the name. And so with all that sort of false spirituality over time, it's unclear how to pronounce this Y-H-W-H. We think it's, scholars think the better, um, the more likely pronunciation is, is Yahweh. When you see in the Old Testament, L-O-R-D, all caps, that's Yahweh. When you see capital L, then small O-R-D, that's Adonai, which means uh, Lord. And so, if someone asks you who sent you to them, say, I am who I am. Sent me. Now, we don't really find out. It would be great to find out what, how they reacted when, when Moses said that. We don't get to find that out. Verse 15, moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. Verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of uh, of Isaac and of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. Verse 17, and I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of Canaan. And the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Just had to say those names twice. Verse 18, then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. So he's telling Moses beforehand, what he's going to do. Verse 21, and I will give this people 
favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So he's telling this to Moses, who's going to be telling this to the elders of Israel, because a lot of faith is needed to just get up and go, knowing that Egypt is the mightiest nation in the world with the mightiest army in the world. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. You've got to have a lot of faith. So God is telling them in advance, this is what you're going to see. And lo and behold, this is exactly what happened. Of course, there was 10 plagues, but then also all their neighbors were so wanting them to go. It says, look, take my gold, take my silver, take my valuables, just get out of here. We're sick of all these plagues. And they left with a a, a lot of, of wealth. And no doubt that gave them the faith that was needed to do what they needed to do. Now, of course, they grumbled. There's a 40-year history of grumbling. And, 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 you know, but the Lord will do that. He will give you the faith that you need to accomplish His will in your life. So next week, we will continue on in chapter 4.